focus on um, giving. We're going to come back to Zechariah in a few weeks. Um, this is booming in a strange manner, isn't it? I don't know what we can do about that. Um, I want to kind of assure you that uh, there are only two people in this church who have access to the named donors uh, of who gives and what those amounts are. And that's the church treasurer and the donations treasurer. Uh, none of the staff team, none of the current eldership are actually have this knowledge at all. We don't know uh, who gives what. But what we do get is a more general sort of information about giving patterns without sort of any names attached. And so in 2010, there were 235 named donors who gave on a regular basis. Now, if you include wives, that represents about 355 people. So 355 people giving on a regular basis. And there's a further 20 that give on a weekly basis. And in addition, on a, on a regular Sunday, we would get maybe about 1,200 pounds, uh, 12, yes, right, 1,200 pounds given anonymously through the bag. And really, the elders have a concern and a challenge. Our concern is that uh, a small number of people carry uh, the giving of the church in a significant way, while uh, it appears that others maybe don't seem to be so exercised in giving. And so approximately 5% of the membership um, support 40% of the church budget. It's quite amazing that, isn't it? 5% of the church membership support about 40% of the church budget. Now, and our vision really as a church is that we, we want to be conspicuous for Christ in this city. We want to make disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to plant churches here and also in cross-cultural uh, situations overseas. And our challenge really as elders is that we, we see this need to expand the work and yet at the same time we're sort of behind our budget. We were behind our budget for last year, especially with regard to missions uh, support and we're behind our budget, uh, budgeted income for this year. And I guess there's a couple of pinch points that's already been alluded to. There's the, uh, the, the, the squeeze in finance that we're all feeling uh, with, re- with regards to uh, the change in the economy. And also at the same time, that the, the, there's changes that have happened in the gift aid process. The amount that we can reclaim uh, from um, the tax man through gift aid is reduced from about 28.2% down to 25%. And so it's with those concerns and challenges that we want to kind of spend some time uh, considering what the Bible has to teach on giving. And so over the next three Sundays, we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. So please open your Bibles to page 1162. Page 1162. And there's going to be two sessions in June in our fellowship groups where we're going to explore this as well. Now, for some, I think these studies will just be an encouragement. Because the truth is, is that we have many people who are already committed to joyful generosity. Uh, there's no doubt about that, and who, who have thought out their priorities and uh, have followed through. But for others, I hope that this may be a helpful challenge to consider in a fresh way uh, how and why uh, we give. And if you're here today and you're not a committed Christian, uh, then I hope that today you'll see what motivates the Christian life. Uh, even down to the most mund- seemingly mundane things as, as giving. 
as we view our money. So let's just read the first nine verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urge Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. This is God's word. Now what we have here really is helpful, forgetful givers. Helpful for forget, I can't say that, helpful, forgetful givers. Um, the great thing about talking to Christians about giving is that genuine Christians already have a genuine desire to be generous. Uh, it just flows out of understanding uh, the good news about Jesus Christ. God's Spirit starts a brand new life in us, and uh, one of the things that changes, well, it changes all our uh, our. our desires, our thinking, our priorities, and uh, you know, we start to love and serve God instead of loving and serving money. And when we get the gospel, uh, we want to give uh, to spread the gospel. And the, so it, the, the challenge is not really to create something out of nothing. That's not true. We, we, we want to give. And while we have these new desires and uh, new intentions, the problem is this, that sometimes our good intentions don't quite follow through into action. And so uh, I'm sure that if I sort of sat down or we sat down with every single Christian at Charlotte Chapel and we asked them individually, do you desire to give your, your money and resources to support this church, to see the gospel spread? You know, I can guarantee almost you know, every person would say, yes, yes, of course I do. But for some, this desire doesn't quite turn into prayerful, considered commitment of regular giving. And there may be a variety of reasons for that. And so what we need is helpful, forgetful givers. And that's exactly what we've got going on in 2 Corinthians 8 to 9. Um, in, in the first century there, the Apostle Paul has started a collection to relieve poverty amongst some of the churches in and around Jerusalem. And it sounds like that when he talked about this collection to begin with, uh, the Greek churches uh, were so excited to be involved. They, they were enthusiastic. But for some reason, this church at Corinth hadn't quite followed through. Uh, so look at chapter 8 and verse 10. Uh, and here is my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, 
but also to have the desire to do so. Now, finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it. We'll have a look at chapter 9 and uh, verse 1. There's no need for me to write to you about this service to the saints. That's this uh, special gift for the poor Christians in Jerusalem. Verse 2, For I know your eagerness to help, and I've been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year you and Achaia were ready to give, and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. See what's happened? I mean, Paul uh, raised this possibility, this collection. Uh, the church in Corinth were just cock a hoop. They were so excited. They go, hey, this just sounds fantastic. We want to get right behind this, Paul. We're with you all the way. And Paul was quite amazed. In fact, as he went to other churches, he said, I can't. It's incredible the response from uh, the church in Corinth. They were so excited uh, to give. And, and as, as he shared their enthusiasm, other churches were motivated to give. But it, it gets a bit tricky. Verse 3, 9 verse 3. But I'm sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready as I said you would be. Uh, for if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. So did you pick up the tension here? Tricky. Tricky situation, isn't it? They were so excited about giving, you know? Hadn't quite followed through. You know, the last time he was with them, that excitement goes around and tells everybody else, I can't believe how excited they are. They can't wait to give. And people go, oh, we want to get on this too. But turns out they haven't followed through. Tricky. Tricky situation. So that's what these chapters are about. These chapters provide motivational help for forgetful Christian givers. That's what we've got here. So uh, I've got three points. Number one. Christian giving is an evidence of God's grace. Paul starts with this example of the churches in Macedonia. So have a look back at 8 verse 1. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. See, these churches in Macedonia, they were great examples of spiritual vitality. The church in Corinth was in danger of just kind of looking at themselves. And, they, and he wants to turn their gaze away from themselves and, and, and out to these other churches to see a place where there are just these strong evidences of God's grace. Now, how do you know that a church is full of God's grace? How, how, what, what are the evidences that God's grace is abundantly blessing a church? Um, that his unconditional kindness and blessing is there? Well, there's two evidences there in verse 2. Do you see them? Number one, overflowing joy. Number two, rich generosity. Two evidences of God's abundant grace in a church. Overflowing joy and rich generosity. Now, non-Christians can experience joy and be generous. I would imagine if I just received a one million pound bonus from the bank, I'd be pretty happy about it. And I might even, you know, uh, donate some 
to a charity. So why does Paul cite this as an example of supernatural uh, activity? Why does he say, well, this is evidence of God at work? Well, quite simply this, their situation could not explain it. What was their situation? Verse 2, their overflowing joy came out of an experience of severe trial. Out of the most severe trial, overflowing joy. Uh, They were experiencing many hardships for becoming Christians in the city. Just as Christians and uh, churches are experiencing a really hard time in Egypt right now. Churches being specifically attacked and and targeted for violence. And yet, if we could kind of get into the TARDIS, go back in time and be part of the churches there in Macedonia, what we would have experienced would have been an irrepressible joy. Um, Over 30 people went to the New Words Alive conference, and many of us heard an interview with the uh, Bishop of Jos, the Anglican Bishop of Jos in Nigeria. And uh, it was an incredible story, really, what's happening there. Jos is on the sort of fault line between the Muslim North and the Christian South. And the Christians there are experiencing terrible hardships, real suffering. He and his wife uh, have experienced terrible beatings and torture themselves. And he just touched lightly on all that they were going through. And this is being experienced by the churches. Churches being put to death with machetes. And you know what struck me was the way he was so full of joy. Even, even this terrible sickness, this man exuded joy and even humor. Now what can explain this? Only this, it's God's grace. God had given them special grace to cause such a supernatural response. Second evidence, rich generosity had flowed out of what? Out of extreme poverty, he says. Uh, Their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Often part of the persecution that Christians face as they turn to Christ uh, in hostile cultures is that their neighbors start shunning them. They'll not go and support their business. They will not um, buy for them, trade with them. And so becoming a Christian can cause financial impoverishment. And maybe that's what was going on in Macedonia. And many in these churches were poor, yet they gave with great generosity. I mean, it sounds like the Apostle Paul didn't even consider asking them to contribute because of their situation. And yet when they heard news about this collection, they begged Paul. They begged him urgently to be involved. Paul, you've got to let us, we, 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 we want to be part of the, the privilege of supporting these Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem. Can, you, can we? Can we? Oh, no, I, I can't. You, you hardly have anything. Oh, we must do it. We, please, Paul, please, we want to give. And they gave with rich generosity, well beyond what was comfortable for them to give, Paul says. They, they actually deprived themselves in order to be able to support this project of their apostle. Now, what explains this rich generosity in a context of extreme poverty? What explains this? Only this, God's grace. A gift of God's grace. God had given them special grace to cause this supernatural response. Overflowing joy, rich generosity is an evidence that God is at work in the life of a church. Now, why does the apostle start with this example of the Macedonian churches? Why do you think he does that? 
well, if I don't compare myself with other people, I can feel pretty good about myself. You know, I can think I could look quite young until I see a picture of myself on my wedding day. And then you thank God that you have poor eyesight, don't you, as you get older? Forget the memory of what you once looked like. Um, I can feel that I'm pretty fit until I go cycling uh, uh, in Glentress with Michael Hunt and Andy Prime. And as I'm hacking up a lung, red in face, on the verge of death, there's, there's Michael Hunt pulling a wheelie, chatting away. Like nothing's happened. And Andy's just shooting up away. Well, you see, you can feel pretty good about yourself until you start sort of comparing yourself with what healthy looks like. See? See, I can think I'm a pretty patient guy, pretty loving guy, until I actually meet someone who's patient and loving. And I look at my wife and realize, wow, compared to healthy, actually I've got a long way to go. And sometimes as churches, you know, that comparison is helpful as well. And, and, and the church in Corinth had become inward-looking. It had become proud of its success, proud of its giftedness, and come to the opinion that it was very spiritually healthy. And so Paul starts up by actually saying, well, check out this truly healthy picture of church life. Have a look at that. It's a stirring example to them. It's an example supposed to stir them and go, wow, yeah, that, that's amazing. Why, why, how do we compare with that? How did Corinth compare? If you could go to the Go Compare website of uh, spiritual health, what would they have seen? Not so good. Not so good. Somehow they got stuck. <laughs> you know, a lot of enthusiasm at the beginning. Not a lot to show for it, right? Here's an example to stir them up to spiritual health. And the implicit promise of verse 1 is that even in established older congregations where this may not be the case, there is the hope of renewal and revival where God can freshly give such grace again. It's a gift of God's grace. He can do this in a church amongst his people. What about us here at Charlotte Chapel? I don't know what the report of the Macedonian churches does to you, but for me, it sort of stokes up sort of a godly jealousy. Uh, I want to be someone that when people meet me, they experience a genuine joy and generosity. That's the person I would love to be. Uh, it's not always true of me. Wish it was. Wish I was more like the Macedonian Christians. Is it true of you? It's true of some of us, that's for sure. Uh, there's been a significant amount of giving over the past year on top of regular giving to support relief projects such as the work we did, uh, the money we gave to Compassion in Haiti, uh, to, the, to, the, to relief of the situation in Japan. There's been Thanksgiving offerings on that uh, to support uh, and encourage our missionaries with Christmas gifts and uh, with our Ministry of Friendship Scheme and people ongoingly support Nidri Community Church. And I, I would say that there is much evidence of God's grace in people's lives here because people do give in a faithful, regular way. But I want to speak to you as an individual. Are you one of those number that are involved in this? Are you part of that group here that is committed to this regular participation of giving? And, and if you're not, be worth having a look at the Macedonian Christians going, well, why not? Why is that not true of me? Christian giving 
is an evidence of God's grace. Secondly, Christian giving is an act of God's grace. An act of grace. So look at verse 6. So we urge Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Just three quick points here. Firstly, when we give as Christians, it is an act of grace to others. The thing is, giving money can just seem such a mundane act. Uh, Carefully planning and working out what your income is, uh, what your expenditure is, and prayerfully considering to give a certain percentage of your income uh, to the Lord's work, and then taking that right the way through to filling out a standing order form and uh, getting that to the bank, and uh, or, or, or committing to sort of coming each week, and instead of like the panic when the bag comes around, oh, scrape some change in, you, and that you actually have thought in advance and planned. Uh, I'm going to put some in an envelope. I'm going to give a certain amount. That seems very mundane, doesn't it? Kind of very dull activity. But do you know what it is? It is an act of grace. We are engaged in an act of grace, it says here. We who are recipients of God's grace can be agents of encouragement and blessing to others as we give. See, not only is our giving an evidence that God's grace is at work in us, it is a means of God's grace to others. And we'll see this uh, in a few weeks, but let's take a quick peek look at uh, chapter 9, verse 12. 9, verse 12. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but it is overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. As other people's needs are supplied through our giving, it's a cause of many expressions of thanksgiving and praise to God by those who receive it. Christian giving is seen as an act of God's grace to others. And we are the channel through which it comes. We get to participate in blessing others in this act of grace. Isn't that fantastic? Except this. It only works if we, secondly, we follow through. Right? It only works if we actually follow through. This God-glorifying thanksgiving by those whose needs are met actually only happens when our desire turns into action. Um, We can imagine all the joy and delight uh, a gift may bring as long as we want. You know, we can we can sit back and think, oh, on Christmas Day our kids are going to be so excited. They're going to be so excited. You know, if I ever got around to buying the present. Uh, they would be so excited if we actually gave it to them, but actually Christmas could go by if we didn't buy it and didn't give it. The kids are not that excited, are they? We can imagine all the, the joy and blessing that giving may bring, and, and, but it, it doesn't actually achieve it until we do it. And so Paul is sending Titus back to them again, kind of in this like awkward, tricky situation to kind of help them follow through. He knows that they want to. Somehow they got stuck. Titus is coming back just to kind of help with some of the practicalities, help move it along so that when they come, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's organized. And in essence, what we're providing uh, over these kind of three Sundays and a couple of fellowship groups is some Titus ministry to kind of 
uh, help us uh, to stir us all up as a congregation to freshly consider this matter of giving and encourage one another to think about how we can be more involved in this act of grace. Thirdly, we can ask God to grow us in this grace of giving, uh, which is what is going on there in verse 7. See, if you're here today and you're a regular at Charlotte, but you don't give in a consistent way, in a joyful way, what can you do about it? Well, first off, recognize it's a spiritual matter. Secondly, we can ask God to change our hearts to help us grow in this grace of giving. See, the Corinthians, they had lots of spiritual gifts that benefited them as a church. They were pretty weak on the gifts that benefited others. And so Paul describes this giving as a grace gift that they should actively desire and pray for. See to it that you excel. Uh, It implies to me that actually, uh, if we're not that great at giving, we can ask God to begin to change our hearts. We can ask God to begin to give us uh, a fresh heart of generosity, a fresh uh, desire to want to participate in this uh, ministry of giving. Maybe you're on a low income, or you're on an unsteady income, and maybe you've never given before. Well, just ask God to give you this gift of, of His grace. Ask Him to put that in your heart. Maybe it's too much to start with 10%. Well, start with 3%, you know? And uh, ask that God would grow your heart to want to increase that giving. Uh, For some wealthy people, 10% would hardly be noticed. Well, ask God to give you a a heart to to give more. That this act of God's grace would stir naturally from your heart. Just as the Macedonian Christians overflowed with joy and generosity, let's ask God to do the same for us. But what is it that motivates this desire to give? You know, what sustains rich generosity to support Christian ministry, to support discipleship, and to to support uh, congregations throughout the world? Well, it's this third point Christian giving is inspired by the cross of Christ. Look at this amazing verse, verse 9. See, Paul is not commanding them. He points them to the gospel. Look at verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes... He became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. The motivation of the Christian life is this, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It flows out of this good news. Uh, The more we get this amazing grace, the more it turns our whole life around, including making us generous people. Look at what the Lord Jesus Christ did for us. There's so much theology packed into these few words. It speaks of the fact that Christ existed before he came into the world of Bethlehem. It speaks of his unbegun pre-existence. It says he was rich. He was rich. It speaks of uh, 
the fact that Christ came into the world, his incarnation, he became poor. God the Son, who existed with the Father for all eternity, took on human flesh and became fully human. And the one who created all things became a helpless baby in a poor family. Uh, and uh, he had to work with his hands to make his living. Worked as a carpenter. And for three years, he traveled as a teacher, often sleeping rough. The God of the universe didn't have somewhere to lay his head, he said. The God of the universe went about sleeping rough. He became poor, hardly had any possessions. He was rich, but he impoverished himself, even allowing others to treat him like the worst of criminals, the sufferings of abuse, of beatings, of, of crucifixion and death. He became poor. And why? Well, he impoverished himself so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. Now that just speaks uh, of the work of the cross of Christ. That we, through his poverty, Jesus the substitute, dying in the place of sinners, that we, through his poverty, might become rich. And uh, you kind of need to read the whole letter to understand what he's talking about with rich here. This is not saying everyone gets a gold-plated Bentley. Uh, there are people out there who teach that sort of nonsense. Do you think that God came, suffered, on a cross so you could drive a gold-plated Bentley? No. But he made us rich. And that's a way of speaking of all the blessings that we received because of Christ's atoning death. We were far off from God. We were enemies of God. And he reconciled us to himself. He has made us righteous. We were sinners. He has made us right with himself. He's made us rich. You know, the, I, think they've, I can't believe they're rehashing Pirates of the Caribbean. I mean, it's amazing how much of a money spinner that is. And it seems to be the next quest for, uh, for the, for the um, Jack Sparrow is to find, what is it? Uh, Fountain of Youth. There we are. There we are. Yes. So hip with the kids, Phil. You know, he made himself poor. He went to death that we may have the gift of eternal life. To know the riches of knowing God as our Father, Jesus, His Son, and the gift of His Holy Spirit, giving us brand new life, making us brand new on the inside. A life that goes on to eternal blessing and bliss in the new heavens and the new earth. <laughs> in every way, we have been made rich. Now, you see that if we understand the gospel, it does lots of different things to us. The gospel kind of turns around the way we view significant things, right? Last weekend, Sunday Times Rich List, right? They'll tell you who's rich. Uh, and, and that's how much money they got in the bank, how much they'd be worth if they sold their shares or something like that. Really? The most zeros in your bank account makes you rich? Really? Fascinating to me to see that actually some of the wealthy women there are wealthy because they divorced wealthy men, right? You can be rich 
with something in your bank account doesn't really make you rich, does it? Money doesn't give you great relationships. Money doesn't forgive your sins. Money doesn't bring you in relationship to God. Money cannot buy you one extra day in your life, really. Can't take it with you. And yet money's held up as this, as this savior. Oh, here's, here's riches. Pursue this, God. Wealth. You could be on a list once a year on the Sunday Times. Whoopie-doo. This is real wealth. Christ's death for sinners makes us rich. Now, if you're rich, do you worry about giving things? Not really. I'm rich. Sure. You think? Here's it. No problem. I'm rich. And if we suddenly realize what real wealth is, what we have in Christ, my friends, we are rich, and that changes every way we view our lives. And we can give generously because our life is orientated in a Godward way, in a Christ-directed way, because we know that the most significant thing in the universe is that God came in human flesh to the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he made himself poor, so that through his poverty, we might become rich. If you're not a Christian here today, uh, don't be a pauper. You could be the wealthiest person in Scotland and be a pauper in what really matters. Don't be a pauper. Come to Christ. Receive this amazing gift of grace. It's freely given. It was bought at great cost. When we get this gospel, it reorientates our whole life and it fills us with a bubbling joy. You you, you get that at the end of chapter 9. As Paul kind of finishes up this section, it's a tricky situation, this situation, but where does he land? 9.15. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. What's the best gift you've had? You can probably describe it to me, right? This is an indescribable gift. I mean, we can, to try and talk about the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, we've just kind of given the contours. We can't really get into its full significance. It is an indescribable gift. Thanks be to God. When we get the gospel, the gospel of God's grace, it begets grace. It produces overflowing joy, rich generosity. That's what the gospel does. Helpful, forgetful givers then. Christian giving is an evidence of God's grace. Christian giving is a means of God's grace. Christian giving is motivated by God's grace, inspired by the cross of Christ. In fact, what's the best book you can read on personal finance? It would be a book like John Stott's, The Cross of Christ. You know, we just need to understand the gospel better. And everything gets put right including our finances. We're going to sing this great hymn to close. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul 
my life, my all. That's, that's the only fitting response when we survey the wondrous cross of Jesus Christ. Let's respond by singing that together.